This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A terminal cancer patient rather rises from the grave. A medical marvel defies HIV. Two women with autoimmunity discover their own bodies have turned against them. Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel, New York Times reporter, uh, is out with a new book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. And in it, he takes us on a scientific detective tale winding from Black Plague to 20th century breakthroughs in vaccination and antibiotics to cutting-edge laboratories that are revolutionizing immunology. Uh, he says uh, this is perhaps the most extraordinary and consequential medical story of our time. Matt Richtel, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me. Hi, Tom. We uh, had you on for A Deadly Wandering. That's a very interesting book with, uh, with, with local connections here. So I appreciate you having back for an elegant defense. Uh, so uh, how did this book uh, start? It's a very interesting story. Well, um, so I had a friend. I grew up in uh, Colorado right next door, which is one of the reasons I so cherish Utah. Just the the, uh, the mountains remind me of the city. Every time I'm there, I, it feels like home. But uh, just a quick aside. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in Colorado, and and one of my good friends in high school, there were seven of us in a little group of buddies, and he was named Jason. And uh, I just want you to picture Mr. Everything in high school, the way we used to measure things. He was all-state baseball and all-state basketball, and uh, great-looking guy, got all the girls. Um, he had a, a terrible blemish when he was, when we were in 11th grade or the summer before our 12th grade year, his dad died of cancer, and his dad had been kind of a pillar of society, everybody's little league coach, my little league coach, a, a well-regarded guy. And fast-forward now 30 years, Tom, and and when we were in our 40s, early 40s, mid-40s, Jason very age his dad got cancer jason got cancer and it it was called hodgkin's lymphoma so this is a a blood cancer um and i guess if there's good news about it it's supposed to be curable with chemo and radiation but after four years or three years of chemo and radiation jason did not get better and he had 15 pounds of lymphoma doubling every few weeks in his back when his oncologist in Denver said to him, Jason, I love you, man, but it's time to go home and die. And Jason went home, you know, went back to Boulder with his girlfriend and prepared to die. But at the last minute, Tom, he took an immunotherapy drug that was so new it wasn't even on the market. Should I explain what that is briefly? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So... I'm sure we'll get into this more, um, and so at this for this moment, I'll do it at the high level. But an immunotherapy drug is a drug that aims to tinker with the immune system on the molecular level and to either turn up its power or turn down its power. And it it is the the the, the magnificence of this technology as a kind of a human innovation is hard to overstate, but the moment he took this, remember, he had failed all chemo and radiation. He had gone home to die, not even one foot in the grave, nine toes in the grave, or rather more than one foot, nine toes in the grave. And two weeks later, after he took this, his girlfriend woke him up and said, Jason, get out of bed. Your tumor is gone. Now, in the book, you'll see the photos. They blow your Mind. Yeah, it did mine. It was, it's amazing. It's amazing. So just, yeah. th- that's a long answer to your question, and I'll sum it up like this. Mm-hmm. How did the book start? At that moment, as a New York Times science and health reporter, and as Jason's buddy, I picked up my pen and I said, I got to answer what the heck just happened. Mm-hmm. As you write, it, it, essentially, I think somewhere in your mind was, maybe this is a quest for immortality. 
Maybe we're pushing the the edges, the boundaries. Yeah, you can imagine how how excited my publisher was, HarperCollins, William Morrow, a division of HarperCollins, when I said, I'm going to ask the question, can we live forever? And, you know, publishers love books that promise you the magic bullet. Um, of course, the story, the, the, the truth is much more complicated than that, but right. that is the question I asked is, have we gotten to the point where we might where where we might defy death and what i came down to what when i scrubbed everything else away i i understood that what that question was at some basic level is what is the immune system in the first place what are we talking about and so i went beyond the kind of surface level conversation of what is this treatment to a much deeper question um, and that's how the book broadens out. And I want to ask about, you You, you say we use the wrong metaphors um, for for the immune system. The immune system essentially is somewhat misunderstood. I mean, we could talk about that. that you, we use, you know, uh, armies, uh, fighting, that that kind of thing. Uh, use, use the title, An Elegant Defense. What are you talking about with that title? Yeah. Um, so just to just to, so I lump myself in and don't hold myself above anybody else, uh, my, my wife's a doctor, and still I came into this book with huge misconceptions about the immune system. So if any of what I'm about to say, I, I hope it won't come across as judgmental when I say that it's very different than many of us think, because I was among the many of us. Um, let me tell you what I thought. I thought that, and Tom, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be curious to know what you, kind of what you think sort of the the general idea of it is, but I thought it was this kind of war machine that went along trying to keep everything alien out of our bodies. That's I mean, what's a, yeah, your... yeah, that's exactly what I, what I thought, yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. I start with that idea, and it, it, you know, this is two years of interviews with the, the, not only the world's leading immunologists, I mean, I sat at the feet of the, the world-class scientists, but also the people who came to discover this thing. It so happens that our understanding is so recent that many of these people are still alive. And to explain what the immune system is, I think it's helpful if I give you a... Um, kind of give you the context within which we live and which the immune system works. So what do I mean? Do you, Tom, do you remember the movie The Matrix? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I often think about the... I, I often have find myself thinking about The Matrix a lot these days. In that movie, for those who, who haven't seen it or want a reminder, in that movie the main character discovers that all around him are ones and zeros. There are these computerized digits that, that populate the entire world. Well, analogously, in that same way, Tom, if you look on your desk, if you look on your microphone, the folks in, you know, dr- driving, uh, you know, driving along the Wasatch right now, if you look at your steering wheel, um, your radio dial, the newspaper you've got, there are microbes everywhere, the same way there were ones and zeros in the matrix. There are bacteria and there are virus and there are parasites. They are covering everything. We live, we cohabitate with uh, alien organisms, let's call it. Are you with me so far? Uh huh. So here's the problem with the war machine. If our bo- oh, I left out a key part. I'm sorry, Tom. They're not only on us and around us and on our skin, they're in us. About half the cells in our body are bacterial cells, mostly in our gut. If our body was aimed, or if our immune system was designed to keep everything alien out and to go to war with it, we would have a scorched earth existence. I mean, we, it would be nuclear winter. We'd just be piles of pus on the floor. Pus is made up of white blood cells that are part of our immune system. That is how the world would work. So instead, what is it? Well, 
what the immune system is, is it's at its core, and this goes to all how medicine is being reconceived. This very idea is a central notion for how medicine is being reconceived, is that the immune system really is trying to be as cooperative as it might to get along as harmoniously as it might with all the microbes inside of us and on us and around us. And then when it needs to do violence, when it comes across what is really a fairly rare pathogen, a pathogen is a dangerous microbe, only then is it capable and does it do incredible violence. I mean, extraordinary, ruthless killing. But it tries to do so with, by doing as little collateral damage as possible. And that is why, and here's the punchline, far from being a war machine, I think of the immune system as part bouncer and part ballet dancer. <laughs> Capable of great violence, tiptoeing as much as possible, an elegant defense. Yeah, that's wow. That's that's quite the image, and uh, I've got the pile of pus in my mind as well. Um, so, which I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for those yeah. who who are eating. <laughs> yeah. I'm just grateful we're not big piles of pus. That 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 the, that the immune system is an elegant defense. You use words like uh, restraint, balance, harmony. That that describes the immune system as well. Yeah, and and so when you think about the diseases that so we've talked about Jason in this book are in addition to all the science are four I guess character studies or tales of people whose lives unfold through and we I tell it through their immune system Jason is the guy whose immune system didn't do enough but there are two women in here if you like your Goldilocks metaphors they're Two women whose immune systems do too much. These are women with autoimmune disorders. So if you go back to this idea of a bouncer and a ballet dancer, many, many people are suffering autoimmune disorders. That is a case where the bouncer overpowers the ballet dancer, and the body begins to behave too aggressively in response to its own tissue. It attacks itself. And then there's a fourth character in this book who is a guy whose immune system is so perfect, if you will. So Jason's didn't do enough. These two women did too much. And there's one guy who's got it just right if the goal, in the Goldilocks metaphor. And his immune system is so good that the National Institutes of Health studies it for the secrets to its abilities. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Uh, Robert Hoff, right, you're talking about. Robert Hoff. Um, uh, so let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about these, uh, these other three uh, people. Um, well, the book is An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. It's by Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel, uh, and he's with us for the hour. You can join us here uh, by email with your question or comment, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. More following this break. Aaron Copeland was from Brooklyn, a city slicker who captured and to a certain degree created what we think of as the sound of the old American West. We'll hear from his cowboy ballet, Billy the Kid, Corrado Rivares conducting the Artosphere Festival Orchestra on the next Performance Today from APM. That's tonight at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. The Trump presidency continues to be divisive, not just for Americans, but for the GOP itself. The founder of the Republican Party, the real founder, Abraham Lincoln, talked about the better angels of our nature. We have a president who every day consistently appeals to the very opposite. I'm John Donvan. On the next Intelligence Squared U.S., four debaters go head-to-head -head on the renomination of Donald Trump. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest for the hour is Matt Richtel. He's a reporter for the New York Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize from National Reporting for a series of articles about distracted driving that he expanded into his first nonfiction book, A Deadly Wandering, which is a uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, the new book, very interesting book, is called An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. I'd like to talk about that last part, Tale in Four Lives, uh, four characters, if you will. Maybe uh, Matt Richtel, tell us a little bit more about Rob. Robert Hoff. Yeah, so Robert Hoff um, is uh, quite an amazing tale um, with lots to teach us about the world and our immune systems. Robert Hoff grew up in Iowa um, and uh, learned very early on in his life that he was attracted to men and learned very early on in life that he better hide that fact. Um, you know, Iowa, Des Moines, in that period of time, the late 60s, early 70s, that was no time to be a gay young man. And so he was closeted, um, married a woman, um, actually married several women, um, first ended in divorce. And during his second marriage, he was, um, he, you know, he had kind of an open marriage. And on the night of Halloween 1977, he contracted HIV. Um, that was the very beginning of a, the darkest, one of the darkest plagues in human history. Just a word about HIV. Um, you want to construct a nasty virus, you could hardly do it any better than this because it not only is terribly elusive, um, it not only is terribly deadly, but it actually destroys the immune system. So it basically makes the body susceptible to every conceivable thing that could kill us that most of us keep in check all the time by just having a regularly well-functioning immune system. But Bob Hoff never gets a symptom. Bob Hoff goes to funerals of hundreds of friends. Bob Hoff is with us today. And Bob Hoff's immune system is studied in Building 10 of the National Institutes of Health, which surely means as little to the audience as it meant to me. But Building 10 is like... I don't know. It's like uh, it's the center of the immune system research universe. Um, I picture a, a ray of light going out the top of it. <laughs> and they are trying to figure out why is it that Bob Hoff's immune system could parry this thing that nobody else's could. It turns out that he is one of a number of elite controllers. They control the HIV in an elite way, and I won't give away all the science here, but he is the second, or he is one of the four characters in the book, and he has a lot to teach us about how the immune system works and about the value of diversity, because if it wasn't for diverse immune systems, we would have never survived, say, the Black Plague or the flu pandemic. You need people whose bodies react differently to the world. Is that... Is that how we survived the Black Plague? We had pe some people who were immune to it or weren't affected as yes. much? Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. So you can almost think of your immune system as a kind of fingerprint. It's so unusual, so unique, meaning it has many, many characteristics in common with everybody else. But the immune, but our immune systems do something. Now, I actually want to pause here and say, Tom, we should, there are so many directions to go, but should I pause here and explain the way in which the immune system becomes so diverse as to be, um, 
as to as to enable us to fight a virtually infinite number of possible foes. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. All right, so when I think about um, all the misconceptions or naivetes I bring into the book, among the other most <laughs> mind-boggling things I had no idea about was when was was this question that was posed to me by immunologists, which they basically said, "Well, Matt, how do you think our bodies come prepared to fight any possible pathogen?" I mean, yes, it is a bouncer and a ballet dancer, but there are times it has to recognize a foe and fight it. How can your body come equipped? With so many, with a, the ability to fight so many different possible foes. Now, with your permission, Tom, I'd like to magnify that question and explain just how profound it is. Can I go a little further? Yeah, definitely. All right. So check this out. Remember all those microbes I was describing the all around us? Well, they replicate. Every, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, we replicate every 20 years. We're, we change over our generation. When, it, when they replicate, they can mutate. They can change. They can come up with new ways to invade us. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm trying to keep this conversation in, a, in the proper humble balance and not overstate the threats to us in the sense that I don't want people to walk away thinking I'm going to die <laughs> from a terrible infection because the most of the microbes in the world would do us no harm. But the ones that would have the ability to go through an arms race we can never compete with. It is not possible. So the question that vexed immunologists all the way up to the mid-1970s was, how can the human body come equipped with a virtually infinite number of possible um, keys to all the possible deadly locks? Does that have I have mm -hmm. I expressed the magnitude of that question? Yeah, yeah, amazing. fairly, Tom. Amazing. Yeah, I remember Jason's oncologist said to me. He goes, "Well." And this, this would apply whether you're atheist, agnostic, to, you know, a person of faith. He, but the quote he gave me was, um, God had two options. He could, um, uh, can, I, can I find this quote for you? Yeah. I love this mm -hmm. quote. Let's see if I can find it. I think I know what page it's on. I love his quote. Uh, bear with me. God had two options, Jason's cancer doctor told me. He could turn us into 10-foot-tall pimples, or he could give us the power to fight 10 to the 12th different, 10 to the 12th power different pathogens. Why 10-foot-tall pimples? Well, we're back to pus. Mm -hmm. Pimples are actually filled with pus, which are filled with white blood cells. In other words, he could turn us into only white blood cells, only immune system, of course, you know that we are not 10-foot-tall pimples, <laughs> maybe unless you're, you know, briefly between the age 14 and 14 and a half. Right, only briefly, um, yeah. Only yeah. briefly. Um, or he could give us the power to fight this. So inside of us, this is a chapter called the Infinity Machine. Here's what happens. Here's how you are equipped to fight so many different things. Your immune cells, inside your body, there are billions of cells, immune system, hundreds of millions of immune system cells. And at birth, in gestation, those cells rearrange their DNA at random. So I want you to think of like, you know, a massive computer calculator rearranging DNA. No other DNA in your body does what I'm describing here. And by virtue of rearranging the DNA, all those different T cells, all those different immune cells in your body have a different genetic code associated with them. And that genetic code is at random able to connect 
to the genetic code of a virus or bacteria or parasite that you might, underscore might, run into in the course of your lifetime. You are an infinity machine. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. W- within each of us. Yeah. Within each yeah. of us, mm-hmm. such that, to return to Robert Hoff, the only way for the species to survive, Tom, you and I, during the Black Plague, made have, might have gotten, almost certainly got, did get, a different set of random keys, which means that when the Black Plague came up, you might have had the key, I might have died, and as your neighbor, you might have lived, and only through that diversity does the human species survive. Hmm. I want to, you mentioned, is it Building 10? Um, Building 10, it, yeah. Yeah, it, kind of, it illustrates we're, we're living in a golden age of science, of, of immunity. It, 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 is, it is incredible. We knew so little not that long ago, and part of the reason we knew so little is because so much of this is happening at the molecular level, and we needed the technology. I mean, if ever there was a moment to reflect on the power of science, it's the fact that thanks to the science, that incidentally, very interestingly, as I went back and looked at the book, the science that was funded, say, at Building 10, was, was a very bipartisan affair for many years. Um, there was an effort to fund what's called basic science, and that is paying off manifold now because people are being saved by these innovations that came about in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah so it's paying off now. It's paying yeah. off now, yeah. but the spade work needed to be done. Mm-hmm. If you get... If you get the reason this book is subtitled The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System is because in point of fact, it is quite new. It's a hard thing to imagine. The immune system's been with us four hundred and eighty million years or so, us meaning that's how long it has been largely intact. We share it with a shark, much of its precepts. But it's only recently we've come to understand it because the science is so complicated, and now we are capitalizing on that with medicines. Where where is the science going? Do you think this is the, the amazing new discoveries? Where, where, maybe pick out a couple of things that are just amazing that where we're heading. Yeah, I would say there are two areas that are well. There are three areas that I would highlight. One has to do with Jason and people with autoimmune disorders. Those are, remarkably enough, opposite sides of the same coin. Cancer is when the immune system gets stymied and doesn't attack a tumor. Autoimmune disorders are where, as I mentioned, it's overzealous. But we are coming up with increasingly refined medicines, and this is one of three areas I'll mention about where we're going that allow us to turn the volume up or down, you pick a metaphor, turn the bouncer up or down, turn the, empower the ballet dancer. Um, we're coming up with more medicines now and more refined ones to help people with cancer and autoimmunity, and that's gonna change many, many lives and has already. Number two is the microbiome. Would it be okay if I just took a second to describe yeah. what that is? Yeah, please. So I mentioned that inside of us are all these microbes and around us, but the microbes that live on and around, sorry, on you and in you are your microbiome. They are like a, I don't know, a, a universe or a, uh, a body of alien organisms that share your body with you. And a lot of claims are being made right now about the microbiome um, and how to fix it and support it. I would say this. We are very early on. I would be a little wary of the claims you read. um, But that said, what we are discovering is that we are on the cusp of understanding a major key to human health. And I'd like to give you one specific example of where the microbiome discoveries are going to change 
and improve lives so powerfully as we get better at it. Um, but I want to pause and not get too long-winded. Can I go into that area? Yes, yes. Okay. Tom, you tell me. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to walk the line between not being too long-winded, but also not constantly asking permission. You're right, right. <laughs> right you're, so you're you doing... just you swap me away. Right. Okay, you're doing fine. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Um, we used to think that this, all this, so you got this universe of bacteria in your belly. And we used to think that its sole purpose was to help us digest food. But what we have come to understand is that body of bacteria inside you is, well, for one thing, it's super, super invested in you staying alive. <laughs> because if you don't live, its planet goes away. And it's so invested, in fact, that it is playing a key role in your health. One of the ways, and this, again, boggled the mind of scientists in, even in the last 10 years, is that it is sending messages across the lining of your gut. I think of it as a, like a tire lining that that's, protects your gut from the rest of your body and vice versa. But it is sending telecommunication signals to help your immune system establish its balance. It is doing so because it is very interested in you making sure you keep out the few bad guys, but also not getting overzealous so that you attack yourself. So microbiome, the more we discover there, the more extraordinary health is gonna be. That's number two. And number three is the brain. We are finding that the brain has a ton of connections to the immune system, and in some ways its own version of the immune system. If you think the immune system was hard to study, imagine the immune system in the brain. You're taking possibly the two most complex networks in the entire world that we understand and understanding each and then their combination. For example, we are discovering that neurodegeneration, which is things like Alzheimer's, may well involve the immune system behaving too aggressively inside the brain. Those are three areas where life is going to change markedly, and it sure would be fun to be alive about 100 years from now, but um, that's, not, that's not in the cards for me. <laughs> or, or probably uh, any of us, right? Um, I like my kids' chances. Yeah, like yeah, like your kids' chances. Yeah. Uh, before we go to break, I want to. You brought this up. You you set out. Um, you wanted to uh, go on a quest for immortality. Um, and near the end of the book, you have this uh, quote, which has been rummaging around in my head. You say, "We must do a much better job of accepting death." Yeah. You want to do that before you want to you want to handle death before the break. Let's do death before the break. Yes. <laughs> That's a good time for it. So um, we can come back to this if you want. I'll try to do it um, in brief here. But the immune system, far from being designed for to keep us alive forever as individuals, is actually much more tailored to keep us alive as a species. And implicit in that is that our immune system, once it gets us to a certain age, is playing a central role in killing us as individuals. And it's doing that because the only way for the species to survive is for us to die, make physical room for other people, and probably more important than that, make room for the mutation that happens with each generation that allows for greater survival. We are talking about evolution. We are talking about key survival mechanisms. And more than that, when I started, not more than that, sorry, but to that end, I started out thinking that I was looking for the holy grail, the fountain of youth. And what I discovered was that the immune system is killing us all along. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we, each of us individually, selfishly, would prefer you know immortality, even though our fellows might <laughs> fall away. My, but really, my, really, what it's doing yeah, is is it would, is ensuring survival of species as a whole. It's surviving. So, and maybe after the break, I can tell you about 
wound healing. I don't know how much time we have, but I can give you a very specific example of the trade-offs the immune system makes in order to keep us alive in the short term, but ensure our deaths in the long run. Good. That's, I don't a, know how... that's a good teaser for uh, for after the break. So let's have, take a break okay. and we'll, we'll talk about that. I also want to talk about bacteria. Well, I'll do another teaser. We'll have two going into the break. Uh, you say, and I didn't know this, 1945, Alexander Fleming accepted the Nobel Prize for discovery of penicillin, and at that, in that speech made an ominous projection that the bacteria would fight back. You say they sure has. So talk about that. Kind of, kind of scary. The uh, you know the battle between bacteria and antibiotics. Um, we'll have much more with Matt Richtel. His book is an elegant defense: the extraordinary new science of the immune system. More following this break. How an influx of self-styled militia groups is testing one small Arizona border town. Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. After spending years in, at one point, the biggest band in the world, Lance Bass of NSYNC is pulling back the curtain on the real world of boy bands, especially how they sold millions of albums, sold out stadiums, but were paid less than a barista at a coffee shop. Lance Bass will tell you how that happened. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio... On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll bring you the voices of female singer-songwriters from around the globe. Women from Brazil, Denmark, Lebanon, France, Spain, Turkey, and beyond. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Acoustic Women, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Our guest for the hour is Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel. His new book is An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. And he's, we have him for another oh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, Matt Richtel, you, uh, you gave us a teaser before the break. Let's complete that thought. Yeah, so um, one of the most evocative pieces of information that I came across was the relationship between wound healing and cancer. Um, and it sort of helps explain the short-term and long-term trade-offs. Um, and, I mean, I hate to anthropomorphize the immune system, so I can't say it has goals, but the way it works. So, Tom, when you and I are kids um, and we get all those nicks and cuts, the body has to heal itself. Um, or else, like a small mountain of sand, we just erode away. That speaks for itself. When that happens, um, we haven't gotten into the mechanics of the immune system, and the, the book does, but there are lots and lots of cells doing lots of different things. And one of the things those cells do is they, they clean away the refuse of a wound, and then they help build the scaffolding to allow the rebuilding of tissue. When they do that... By very definition, they must allow cells to replicate, to divide, so that they can fill up the new space. Otherwise, again, we just evaporate. Here's the thing. When cells divide, sometimes they mutate. That's just math. There's nothing particularly novel about that idea. And a mutated cell is called a cancer. Most cancers we don't need to be afraid of. They die under their own weight. They're so mutant, if you will, they can't survive. Or the immune system recognizes them as not self, different from us, not normal, and kills them off. But over time, over time, 
there comes a mutation that is so pristine, so effective as a cancer that it begins to take root. Now, remember the idea of the bouncer and the ballet dancer? Mm -hmm. Well, a really effective cancer has the ability to send a telecommunication signal, to send a message to the bouncer, ignore me, I'm normal. In fact, do better than ignore me. Help me build. And that is a lot of times why cancers survive. They have sent a message to the immune system as Jason's cancer got a message from his immune system, go ahead and leave me alone. I'm good. In fact, help me build. One of the, before we get into how profound that is, if we want to, just to put a fine point on this, the immune system has made that trade-off for hundreds of millions of years. If if that trade-off didn't work, it would be eliminated through evolution. But it, it does work. Why does it work? Because the immune system wants to keep us alive long enough to get us through reproductive age and the ability to rear our offspring, but then is perfectly willing, if not even desirous, of having a cancer grow that will become capable of duping the immune system and killing us. That's the kind of short-term versus long-term trade-off built in in multiple ways by our immune system. Well, that'll, that'll get your attention, right? The immune system <laughs> is our, so is our friend to up to cut. a point. Yeah, yeah. But incidentally, can I just say, this is why, I just want to say for anybody still smoking, I know how hard it is to quit. I've covered these issues. But cancer, smoking is about the best way you can kill yourself because when you smoke, it creates thousands of little wounds, millions of little wounds, when that ash settles in the pink tissue of your lungs. And it's a double whammy because not only does it create all those wounds, but the the chemicals in the smoke cause your DNA to, to reproduce in mutated ways. So you are basically guaranteeing yourself cancer. Hmm. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, uh, yet another reason, a more stark reason to, to quit smoking. I yep. want to, if, if we can, I'd like to talk about uh, autoimmunity a little in yep. more in depth, and two of, two of the quote-unquote characters in your book uh, suffer from autoimmunity. I just want to read this from you. Um, the, the medicine, the doctors are, uh, have been trained to, uh, treat what they can see, treat what they can find, right? But the autoimmune diseases are, uh, render uh, people, uh, invisible in a, and you say there is no germ, no pathogen, no cutter infection. There's no thing for scientists to discover inside these sufferers, just their own defenses gone out of control. So with new sciences, are, are sufferers, um, like Linda and Meredith in the book, are they becoming more visible or? Are they they're mostly women, right? Are they uh, yes. being treated in a in a better way? Yeah, for sure. Um, we are recognizing as a society, as an advanced thinking society, that something is going on. We may not know exactly what, but we know that people are suffering, and that that suffering is real. This is among the other huge revelations for me in this book is the way in which people, but in particular women, and I'd like to explain why women in a second, but have suffered for years, as I call them, the invisible women. Remember hearing phrases like, it's all in your head, or you're a little hysterical, or why don't you just go get some rest? That pain's not real. That low-grade fever isn't real. You're imagining things. Well, it turns out it's extremely real. Just because it's invisible doesn't make it not real. A word about autoimmune disorders. You've got your bouncer and your ballet dancer. In many people, women in particular, the bouncer gets a little bit overzealous, and it begins to attack your own tissue as if it were a foreign organism. Your joints, say, in rheumatoid arthritis, this is real pain. But it can, get, it can get directed at lots of different organs in lots of different ways. 
We still don't understand many of those mechanisms, but at the very least, doctors are beginning to say, you are not imagining things. Um, Why women? Well, women have stronger immune systems than men. We're trying to understand why that is. Um, One of the women um, leading immunologists in the world, rheumatologists in the world, um, told me her theories on it. She said, look, women confer immunity, give immunity to babies through gestation, through breast milk. They were caregivers through many, many years. There's probably more immune DNA attached to the X chromosome, which is the female chromosome. And the upshot of that is women have a stronger immune system and women live longer. So for the women out there, I just want to say you get that. That's a good thing. Um, But at the cost of having an immune system that can get out of balance more readily. And that's one of the reasons why women suffer so disproportionately from these illnesses. Hmm. Uh, and th- that is a, a st- because, uh, you know, you hear stories you know, over recent, you know, a couple of decades that uh, this invisibility of autoimmune diseases, uh, you know, caused a lot of psychological distress. You know, the person, woman going in knows that she's suffering from something that medicine won't respond to her. Yeah. And there, I picked two women to profile in this book to give different, there, there's no way to fully capture the autoimmune experience, um, and I, I feel almost certain there are thousands of people listening right now who are dealing with these vexing issues. But in one case, a woman, the Linda felt seen, and some of these amazing new drugs have helped her immeasurably, um, and she's gone back to having um, a fairly, um, you know, just really good day-to-day experience. But Meredith in the book, when you read her, you can, you can feel in your gut what it's like viscerally to feel invisible. They keep searching and searching. And when you read her symptoms, they're nothing you could invent in your head. They are physically real. At one point, I watched her. I went out with her in the sun. She covered one hand, left the other hand uncovered, and we were at high, you know, high-altitude sun in Colorado where I was visiting her, and I watched her hand respond to the sun and kind of balloon up. And it was her immune system responding with inflammation. Inflammation is a big, broad term for the body's, for, for the response of the immune system, while her other hand, not in the sun, did nothing at all. That's nothing that was in her head. Mm-hmm. I watched it. But they don't exactly know what vexes Meredith Branscombe. Yeah, so it's still, uh, still frontiers. We just have about uh, two or three minutes left, and I do want to I, I tease this, so I want to make sure we talk about this. I'll just read this sentence from you, um, talking about bacteria. Um, you say, a study funded by the British government projects that more people will die from these germs, referring to drug-resistant uh, bacteria, uh, by 2050 than will die that year from cancer. That's pretty scary. Yeah, amen to that. Um, so we, um, one of the great innovations in human history has been the antibiotic. Um, it, it has taken care of the, a lot of the low-hanging fruit, those pathogens that evade, for a variety of reasons, our immune system. But I mentioned earlier that pathogens, microbes, reproduce very quickly. Well, they are doing what we would do if under attack. They are changing. They're changing in much more sophisticated ways than we ever understood. Um, And one of those ways is that they are passing defenses around to one another. These are strands of DNA called plasmids. You can think of them as shields. And they're doing it so rapidly that they are beginning to make bacteria, and in some cases fungi, if you want to uh, probably the most read story I've ever had in the Times, New York Times, was last Sunday about a fungus called Candida auris, which is fung- fungi are doing the same thing bacteria are doing, where they are evolving to evade defenses. 
So what do we do about this? Well, one thing is we've got to be much more judicious as individuals and as societies in how we use antibiotics. The CDC will say that about 30% of the antibiotic prescriptions that we get in the United States are not necessary. I want to say to those of you listening, be judicious, and it's, for, it's not for the sake of society. It's for your own health. If you take an antibiotic, remember we were talking about the microbiome and how important it is to our overall health. Well, you wipe out some of the bacteria, good and bad, in your gut when you take antibiotics. Say to your doctor, not, you got to give me antibiotics, but do I really need these? Your doctor will know. Um, and then there's also a livestock piece of this, and you'll see some stories coming up in our series on the subject in the New York Times. But we use a ton of antibiotics in livestock, some necessarily, some not so. And when we feed them to livestock, we also continue to saturate bacteria with these basically with these weapons that the bacteria have to figure out a way around, and they do. So that's, the, that's why these bacteria are becoming deadly under circumstances where we once had them under control. Well, we're just about out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Much else in the book, and it's a fascinating book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. Tom, one, can I say one yes. thing I must say? Yes. Two words, King's English. Okay. I love that bookstore. They are good friends to the reader. I don't care if you go there to buy my book, but please give them a visit. Okay, the King's English in Salt Lake City. We love them as well, so thank you uh, for that that plug. And uh, this is a great book as well. urge people to read this. Uh, Matt Richtel, you can read him in the New York Times. Read him in this book as well. And uh, thank you so much. It's been an interesting discussion. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next On Being joyfully defiant wisdom on trees and soil, war and peace, and the human body and spirit, with the late Nobel Peace Prize laureate Wangari Maathai. So we would take trees and march with our seedlings towards the forest (laughs) and say we are marching to go and plant trees. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sunday evening at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is part of something that has never happened before. UPR is one of six NPR member stations chosen by StoryCorps for a new project they've been working on. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they are attempting to put strangers together, folks who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. We will be traveling around the state of Utah collecting these conversations with the hope of having people realize that we have much more in common than we think we do. We are looking for people who are willing to participate, people who are interested in talking with a stranger who, at first, may seem like they have nothing in common. Is this something you'd be interested in? We hope you consider participating. Anybody is welcome. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That will take you to a page with information, examples of these kind of conversations, and most importantly, a questionnaire all hopeful participants will need to fill out. Again, go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.